Welcome to Saving UX. I'm your host, Jeremy Kriegel. Every episode, I talk to UX veterans about the challenges facing our practice and what we can do to make it better. This is the second half of my talk with Gloria Osardu, PhD. If you missed part one, you can watch it on YouTube, listen on most podcast platforms, and do both at sucks.live. That's S-U-X for savingux.live. And now, part two of Saving UX featuring Gloria Osardu. You hit on a, a really important point. There could be a big difference between our intentions and our habits. We, of course, we want we want yes. we want diversity and inclusion. We want good UX and good products. But an organization has its its history, and even I think with a startup, the people who join that, even there might not be organizational history, they come with their own histories and their own habits. And yes, how I guess maybe where have you seen the biggest challenges in? breaking through some of those existing behaviors that might run counter to what the organization says that they want, but where they might struggle to actually put it into practice. Uh, I think that way, see, it's not intentional, but um, even in large companies, like, you know, culture is built, culture is not a bad thing. It's just built when people come together to do things together, right? There's some things that we love, some things that makes us like, feel cozy and I think this is hitting me hard with a startup um but I saw that in like microcultures and the reason why this is really clear for me is I did not grow up in the United States and so I lived in different parts of the world I'm multilingual I have really experienced different cultures and so it really stands out to me when I see like microcultures and the way that we work in a startup, it's so clear because startups are born out of small, intimate teams where the boundaries are not set and everybody does everything just to keep, um, you know, the startup growing. But you, when you hit that mark where they're starting to introduce more leadership and starting to break things up, then you start to see two cultures. One culture being, you know, the old timers and those who've been here longer. And the second being those that are new and those that are starting to infuse, like, what does it mean to scale? And what are some of the things to do as we get bigger? And I think that culture, is, it's just like repeating itself in so many places. It can be inside a, a, a UX org, right? Where with big companies, on Amazon, like you'd have those that have been there five, 10 years, right? There's this culture of like, this is what happened when we were about 200. And now that we are 600 in size, we have new folks and things are changing. So I think that when that starts to happen, that's where you start to see um, the real work that needs to be done to get folks to see that strategic vision of like things have worked in the last several months or several years, but in order for us to scale and get to where we're trying to get to, we really need to change some of the mindset that we've had and also give the assurance in, in really tangible ways of like, we're not going to lose our small company feel, or we're not going to lose a small team feel, or we're not going to lose the way that we felt like people really cared about us in you know, a smaller size company or design team versus a larger size where you have more you know different crafts, you have like different managers and you have different like 
sub organizations in there. So that is something that really stands out to me. And I'm really conscious about it, which means that it forces UX, whether it's research or designers, to index on building that relationship, right? Um, and starting to go out more outside design to really understand how the business, right, products, folks are thinking, understanding their core metrics to ruthlessly prioritize based on what other teams are also prioritizing because then we are aligned on what's below the line, what's above the line. Well, there's so much uh, that we could dig into there. Um, prioritization, <laughs> that, that sort of that cultural awareness. I've it, It's actually come out in a number of conversations uh, from people who have lived in multiple other cultures, people have tended to immigrate to the U.S., that having done that makes them more aware of the cultural differences within the organizations they join. And it seems to be a gap yeah. for those of us who have only lived within one, um, one, one culture for the most part. Yeah. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts for, again, for those of us who are missing that, that life experience, are there things that you might advise that we could do to kind of gain a little bit more of that, that cultural uh, awareness and sensitivity to kind of those, those changes that you're talking about? Yes. So, um, and it, it goes both ways. Cause for me, for the longest, like, I think I came back since about 15 years ago, I have been a student of American culture. So going back to the basics and learning, you know, American history, African-American history, what are holidays, using those moments to learn more about American culture, which is not monolith, like it's just different things in one. But I think there are a couple of ways to get yourself to start being sensitive to like some of these changes. One, to bring the things that we do in our culture into work right when you go to a new place like culture and and the summary is just like the way people live the way they dress the food they eat the way they relate right that's culture and so when I get into a new organization um one thing one conversation I had with my uh, executive sponsor was you know, Gloria, you do understand what research is. You do understand how to build large, effective teams, but you do not understand the company and the team, you know, Gusto or Amazon or Capital One. And so we take a time to really understand who they are and then see areas that we can infuse the things that have worked in their past into it. And I think that's where, like, a lot of people don't understand. They're like, UX is great. Everybody understands great. We did this at Amazon. It worked really well. So I'm just going to copy and paste. It wouldn't, it wouldn't work. Um, and I, I, I believe that those are like little things that you can do when you get a new job or when you start to be in a leadership role, whatever it, you know capacity you are in UX, start to take time to understand who people are, how they do things, why they do certain things, not assuming. One thing that I'm learning every day at Gusto is if things are not working well, don't assume that it's intentional. Like we don't know, people might not even know. Or if things are working really well, don't assume that it happened overnight. It's just intentional, right? So always asking. I think the researcher in me is just like, emphasizing like what would I do to understand you know a customer or a user and that's what I bring into into business 
even in UX, as teams get bigger and larger and we have senior leadership and, you know, leadership going all the way up to the C-suite, I think that it's core for us to take a break and say, hey, I onboarded to a new company, I onboarded to a new team, I onboarded to a new task force. I want to understand who they are, how they work, what are their fears and their concerns, what excites them, what is that five-year strategic plan, what is that 10-year how do we align? Because whatever you do is not going to make sense to them if they don't fully understand how it ties back to the company journey of where they want to get to. And so that's the first thing, spending that time to understand culture in terms of like who they are, how they do things, what their all hands looks like, what are some company rituals, whether it's operating or annual planning, what that looks like. The second is that I always say this, people make companies. Like people do make companies. And so whether it's inside the design org or uh, the business itself or cross-functional, whether it's like marketing or sale, there are people that are in these roles. And so as we think of, okay, research, who are my core stakeholders, design, who are my core stakeholders, how do I drive impact? I think the foundation is just like people are in those roles. People are in those teams. And so if you're lucky to have a diverse team um, or you're lucky to have a bigger team, which, of course, is not just diversity in terms of the looks and, you know, the physical things that you can see about the team and how it's structured, but those intellectual diversity, right, the thoughts, diversity of thoughts and experiences, what I love about all the places that I've been is just like people are coming in with all the things that they've experienced. And if you never ask, you never know. So as you're having those meetings, like spend some time to understand where were they before they joined and how does that tie into what um, holds dear to me? One thing that I love about the pandemic era is that people are starting to loosen up and share more about what, um, their work empowers, right? They're doing work so they can what, spend time with family or do more of like a skill set or a passion project or visit, you know, family, do all the things that we usually did not talk about. And so that's the second thing. Um, always know that, you know, culture is just like people who come together to think about the way that they want to operate. And so Spend time with the individual people because they literally build out the culture in the teams. And that's like the best thing to do when you're starting out to understand how things work in a company. So, so um, going off that, that we just said about uh, diversity of experience. So again, you have a PhD, mm -hmm. very few people do. And I'm curious if that, does that, do you notice that, uh, that, that it has an impact or changes how you see or approach research compared to others who might not have been through that kind of deep of, a, of an academic experience? Yes, a lot. And that has been the biggest learning um, area of my life. So I approach research with rigor. Like, I really think deeply about the psychology behind how we craft research working backwards. So it's not about the methods or the way we do it, but working backwards, what is the core problem that you're trying to solve, right? And how do we craft research that gives us the answer to that big problem? 
But one thing that comes up all the time is, of course, with academic training, you really think about objectivity versus subjectivity. You think about rigor, ethical versus equitable research. You think about legal, you know, complications. When you do research, we tend to not think about the effect we're having. Like if, if, you know, the customer assumes that we're always doing good, like, you know, design for evil. So those principles, I think about what is it that we can do to reduce the bias and assumption? Like sometimes we are not 100% there. And so the research has a lot of, you know, bias introduced, whether it's like participants being super funds or not, or us designing research all the way to tactical in ways that are eliciting some form of like things that we already think we know. So that has been my training and that's what I, I try to look out for. Um, but that has also been, um, that has also evolved in the way that I think about teams. You know, in the last, you know, seven or eight years, I've been managing large research teams. And so with people coming from different areas and with different background and experience and me getting deeper into company cultures and little ecosystems, I have started to really deeply think about trade-offs in terms of like that rigor versus scrappiness, you know, ethical, equitable versus constraints. Like what can we do? What do we have? Even thinking about the way that UX, which is design and research drives um, experience, you know, involvement or the way that we better the experience for customers. It's not about what we can do, but what we can do versus what we should do versus what customers want us to do. Like, it's just that balance that keeps coming up because of my train of like, we can do everything. We probably should not do everything, but we should really get consent and all of that. But then you also have that complementary um, support when you work on large teams where people also understand the value of being scrappy and really like based on the constraints and what you have to deliver quick, impactful work. And so that has been the balance. What I think is great because I spend quite a decent amount of time talking about how to build objective research and adding your subject matter expertise based on what the company knows is good and what we're trying to do and balancing that out. And then having product teams and engineering teams really scrum so fast that it helps me think about, okay, what is the little step we can take right now to get there? So there's always that continuous like evolution depending on team on the company. Gusto is really fast. And so that is also another layer of like, what is the support I give um, Gusto wide? Uh, the enablement I drive um, across all teams to do great research with the limited resources they have and how do I empower the researchers to do those big core questions that are leading into um, company decisions. So one of the things so, that you talked yeah. about, the uh, biases in research. I'm curious, maybe are there <laughs> a couple of maybe more common ones that you run into that folks listening might maybe should look out for and, and, and maybe ways that they might be able to counter, uh, counter those biases? Yeah. So <clears throat> I'm sorry. So the first one is I have two. So the first one is from outside. So not in the research, in the way research operates. The first one is outside. Like a lot of teams and a lot of companies are looking to validate their assumptions. Whereas it has good intentions. So it's like 
there's something that we want to do. Should we validate it? It really starts to get customers and users in, I'll say like halfway through or towards the end. For example, Gusto is in the business. This is just an example of Gusto is in the business of building payroll, right? And so, for example, we think about this new payroll platform that is great and awesome. And we don't get customers in the conversation early about what they they are experiencing and what they see to be the greatest challenge and then build options for the solutions that could work for them and then get them to validate what solution options work because you've already talked to them in the beginning to understand the space, how you can fit your technology in their lives, right? And so what I see a lot is like these product and engineering teams will typically, and this is not just small companies, big companies would have a hint of like, this is where we want to go. And instead of talking to customers to really get to understand, yeah, we all agree this is a problem, but is this the right approach to the solution? We tend to have a solution and get them to validate if this is the right solution. Um, we know that people don't know what is right most of the time. Like if you were to ask me questions about Web3 or some, um, you know, space that I'm not an expert, like I'm like, this is cool, but you're like, this is basic Web3, right? And so the thing I see often is just validation of our solution instead of validating the problem space and how we want to address it. One thing that I tell um, companies, and, you know, this is something that I as such build, you know, my strategic vision, I tell people is that we, people understand the industry or like, you know, industrial ages, they understand the goods and services ages where like, you know, we're starting to build more goods in America. They understand product and, um, you know, services and just like, oh, we're in the service industry. Now we have moved from the service industry to experience industry, which means that the only difference between two companies selling a pen is the experience folks go to to purchase the pen, right? So the problem is already identified, but it's just how we address, which means that we have to go back to the source and see what is it that folks want to use the pen for? And this is the analogy that I'm continuing. So that's the first part of like the biases that we introduce into our work where we get research in so late or we get research in um, because we want to get like a pat in the back and say like, this is actually the problem. This is how we want to solve it. The second thing that I see, and this is also part of like design and research getting big is we have form these like traditional ways of investigating that you know there's a problem in research we'll think about generative research which is like research before something is built or evaluative our um, design would have like a solution area and they'll think about mockups and testing the mockups but there's so many ways to investigate which means that we need to go broader in the way that we're investigating instead to draw inspiration from other industries. If there's a problem, there probably might be opportunity for us to do kind of like data visualization or big data or workshopping, like that mix and match and being innovative. I think it's starting to go away because like researchers in seat have to deliver like the outcome instead of like building those um conversation or group thinking into like what is the best way to investigate this problem so the first one is biases from 
the company and the way that we want to sprint and, and move on. But the second is like as we are growing and building the next generation of, you know, UX practitioners and leaders, how do we get them to really think outside the box of traditional ways of designing, whether it's low fidelity or high fidelity, but designing a service or end-to-end interaction where there's not just the technological touch points, but there's also human touch points. And then there are also touch points that like there's no aid, like they're just going through. And so there's just a gap that they need to jump in order to get to the next touch point. How does that look like? And will our current traditional ways of investigating with research or designing with the tools and the ways that we design help? Um, I don't know, but I think that also introduces bias to the solutions. Has, has there been any, uh, I don't know if you have a story that you could share where you maybe you've you got some yeah. inspiration from something that maybe wasn't one of the traditional uh you know ux research methods and but it fit your problem and and how you found that and how you kind of applied it to your the the, the area you were addressing yes so um when i was at capital one uh we were thinking about the data science community. So for a big, large financial institution, they have a huge community of data scientists. So this is a type of research you would call enterprise research because we are building for folks in the company. Mind you, like research that is built for tech folks are the craziest because they have really high expectation. So the business goal was to really think differently about the data science community at Capital One and the way they build models because we were trying to move over to AWS. And this was our one shot of thinking holistically about the way they build in order to drive um, model governance. And so this is, you know, truly generative. You're trying to understand the community more. And so you're, you know, the the main uh, first step will be to do empathy to understand them. But the way that I thought outside the box was to really understand not just like who they are in one-on-one interviews or like what tax they do. Well, that was great. I did that. But also to understand what that interaction looks like for data science teams. Because when we think about building models, there's really moments where one person builds from start to finish, especially in like high stakes model building. And so one thing that I did with my team was to do a blueprinting exercise. And that looked like bringing a team of data scientists who work together, including their manager, you know, senior level uh, data scientists and the junior level, whether it's intern or whoever is on the team, getting them into a room, giving them hypothetical um, uh model to build and, and, you know, for other parts of the research, we gave them real model that they had built in the past so that we can get, you know, hindsight reflection versus, um, you know, in the moment and what things they would do differently. And it was amazing because that's not, <laughs> blueprints and exercises is not a research method. And so to have them sit in a room for an hour or two and walk through what that collaboration looked like, we're able to catch the, the gaps, and I call them gaps because they are not like part of the main stages where, you know, you go from data cleaning to building to iterating and all the way to publishing and monitoring the model. 
we got to understand the nuances between permissions and who does what and when do you trigger model race and where do you go get information about setting stages and who consults who and who gives access to what. Like all the different non, you know, like the random moments that you see in team collaboration really gave us insights on how do we build this ecosystem for the data scientists. And so those are some of the moments I'm talking about where it's not about a research method, but it's about what is it that you want to learn and how do you create the right environment to investigate what's happening. And I think that's what we don't see, whether it's like a checkout process or um, an ordering process or whatever your business is doing. We only consider like the decisions that get them like step-by-step to a linear journey. But like, who did they consult before they buy that payroll? Like, who is a decision maker? Who writes the check? Like, what are some considerations? What are the ways that they compare what a right, you know, platform is? Like, these are the non-human touch points that sometimes it's just again, essential again, to capture. That's a great point to bring up. We, we often could benefit from taking a wider focus uh, on, the, on the problems we're solving and the, and the flows that people go through. Um, I want to go back to something you you talked about earlier. You were talking about the different skills and subskills that that people might bring. Yeah. In, as you look, and you're especially as you're building teams and hiring, are there skills that you look for that you think are maybe undervalued in terms of how it helps people be effective, but that you've seen really helps make people you know better practitioners, collaborators, etc. That's a good question. So for research, I can speak for research. I sit in design hiring, but I'm not ultimately the decision maker in most cases. But for research, I look for the basics. So, you know, is this person a researcher? Yes or no? Are they able to do the basic research, you know, skill set methodology? Because believe it or not, even when you start, you get to, um, you get in, in those like, you know, user testing, usability testing, like those simple things that researchers are often call to consult on. So I want to make sure that the basics are covered. But the most underrated skill for a researcher, and I think for design or UX, is learning and relearning. Because if someone has the ability to learn in the moment and the ability to relearn or unlearn what they know, that is the greatest, for me, it's the greatest determinant of success in roles. Because when you're able to really question your assumptions and think about what's working or what cannot work in a situation, you have to, when you come to a conclusion that like you have to change or switch, it's your ability to quickly pivot and learn something new. And I see a lot of, you know, researchers and research leaders that I mentor talk about, what is the next new thing that I need to learn to be relevant? Like, right, when the pandemic hit, people were talking about user testing and virtual research tools and all the new things. And then, like, really, like, you just need to cover the basics, but be prepared to learn and unlearn and relearn for the rest of your life. In smaller companies, you get the opportunity to do a lot of things. So you try things, you do a lot of things, your scope is wider. And even for big companies, like even if you are tied to a specific niche, I think that ability to learn 
and relearn the way that you do things or the way that things are working really makes books successful. I remember my time at Amazon, I joined a company and it was just like, we have this writing culture. And so there are no PowerPoints. And, you know, researchers, everyone in a company would have to write their reports or write exactly what they're thinking. And I had to advocate for budgets and resources and headcount and write out what I'm thinking. Imagine a multilingual person and, and really think about it. And I signed up for all the trainings, practice, practice, practice. And I realized that it wasn't about the writing culture. It wasn't about, um, you know, the way that you get yourself into a new situation and just like move forward. I think that's a skill that we're starting to see a lot in, in UX where you might know Figma, but the next day there's going to be Loom. Like, how do you, you know, get to learn that really fast and learn that quickly? You might be working in an environment where you are the single designer and UX person, and now you get a new job and you're working on a team. Like, what are the things that you learn and unlearn and relearn? Or are you might be working with a team that design and product fully understands your value, like why you are there, how to relate with you. And then things switch up. You have a new person join a team who's leading product and they are starting to ask you questions about like, what is design or what is research and how do I work with you? Like, what is that process of just like being humble enough to learn and relearn and teach and, you know, get people to understand where you're coming from. And I think that for me, when I'm hiring, I look for that potential because it's not about what you know today, but if tomorrow things were to switch up, like how would you learn that really quickly or so, learn so some of the things there. that you're when you are in that hi- When you're in that hiring process, <laughs> what are you looking for in a resume, in a portfolio that says this might be a candidate who has that that ability to learn and pivot. And beyond that, when you're having the conversation, are there questions that you that you ask that you find have been really effective to help you evaluate whether someone possesses that quality? Yes. So um, usually researchers would not have a portfolio, but I want to see some form of like it's a web or, you know, a document, some form of like write-up or, you know, web portfolio, whatever you want to show. I'm not into the visuals because I don't think the visuals really tell deeply about, you know, what a researcher can bring. I want to see some evidence of like, what was the problem space? And that ranges between how fuzzy it is to like how really defined. And that's how we try to figure out like what level or what experience they have. Now, um, when you look at the work that they've done in the past, you want to ask questions. I do ask questions about how the problem came to be. That gives a good indication of like, what is it that they had to figure out in order to do the research? So doing the research itself is that middle, like, you know, in a peanut butter uh, sandwich, that's like a peanut butter, but the, the, the bread house on the sides are, what, 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 like, how did you get to be the researcher on this project? Like, what was the designer tell you this is what they wanted to do? Or was the business indicating? Or did you realize that this was an area that you need to investigate? That's one component of, like, starting to understand what it is and how to jump in or how to go in and ask more questions to learn more about what you need to do. Another component is that cross-functional working relationship. And I see that to be an indication, not all the time, because I also see a lot of folks coming from 
teams where they're just one person researcher or one person designer and I don't want to fault them or they're coming from agencies, right? They don't have a team. It's just you on a multiple, um, multiple projects. So I want to understand what does that relationship look like when you're working with multiple stakeholders on a research problem. And so I keep like asking follow-up questions like, okay, this is what you did, but you know, how did you get to a point where they understood the insights? Like, how did you share out? What was that follow-up about? Because for research, we're starting to see more and more that it's not about just delivering, but getting your core stakeholders to be part of the journey and being scrappy enough to share the insights as it comes and keeping it fresh for the longest possible time. So it's not just, you know, wrapping it up and throwing it off the wall for your team but just being the person to remind the teams of what we are learning and what we are listening. So that's my second indicator. And then the last indicator is being able to um, look back, right? Look back and, and think like, if you had more time, what would you do? If you had less time, what would you do and why, right? Um, if you had all the resources, if you, if, if you have constraints, what would you do? And starting to throw in some of those uncertainties because the way someone reacts to some of these constraints and uncertainties and thinking deeply about like two things at the same time in terms of like, okay, if this were true, like what would that mean? And if this other thing was, was true, what would that mean? Could that happen? And what would I do in those situations to see how they're flexible? So going back to that learning, relearning, unlearning, uh, it's just super key for me to see how they really are self-conscious and thinking about like what would change about the research if some of these that, different components um, One more thing on learning and then maybe we'll wrap up. I realize we're, this is a, this, we're almost at an hour and I'm like, there's yeah. so many more notes I have here, but I think in a lot of these conversations, <laughs> it's easy to talk about the things that at least we think we know in the moment. So I'm curious, what, what are you learning now? Like where, where, yeah, what, what are you learning now and how do you go about, you know, as someone with a lot of experience, where do you look for, um, to learn from? Like what are the channels you look for to learn? So what I'm learning now is um, it's really interesting and just like how my mind thinks, but I'm starting to learn how to effectively triangulate customer insights from all the different sources. And the reason why I'm starting to learn that, and this is something that I've, I've been doing for, I think, three to four years, which is not long ago, but I, for a long time, really um, thought that, you know, research insights should drive the business. And then I start to realize that there's no one insight or one set of insight that tells a story. And as we start to work closely with teams and companies and understand where the world is going and look at our insights on trends and market and customers and what they want, we, I started to realize that we are not even catching up to the evolution of users and what they want. And anytime there's a big um, tech experience or innovation that happens, like we find ourselves lagging behind. And so as UX research and building and scaling our teams of so thinking about how can we get ahead of product teams and businesses and companies and help drive those insights that are relevant 
when they are ready. So it means they have to be super relevant or super fresh because when the teams are ready, it might be like four months or six months into it. How do we stay ahead of trends? And that has forced me to think deeply, not just about, you know, UX research insights, but, you know, um, consumer insights, which is like big trends happening, getting closer to marketing teams and the way they do market research, because that also gives us an insight of like what folks, what drives folks to get into even using our products in order for us to get that user experience and insights. And then also paying more attention to um, our customer support and documentation, because I feel like it's a kind of a flywheel where like, you know, we, we hear why people are reaching out to customer support, their insights there, but we also know that not everybody will call customer support unless they're really in a tight situation. So how do we get those insights coupled that with data science uh, insights, look at, you know, uh, economists and the research trends that they're they're sharing with us, do the design and product research, and then triangulate that data to tell the holistic story of like what is it that we know. And I spent a lot of time doing that um, investigation, learning a lot from actual people in roles, but also just learned a lot about the work of facilitating that conversation because there's so many pockets of information. And I think that is not just a startup thing. It's just something that we should be doing more even in big companies where it's just not one lens that you look at, you know, the insights or how customers experience your product, but you have several lenses and so many different uh, pockets of data that you All should right. be leveraging. Possibly, possibly last question. Um, any advice that you would give to <laughs> more junior researchers uh, who are Early, you know, obviously, earlier in their career, things that they should think about or encouragement or, again, what, what would you say to those folks? So I will tell them a couple of things. The first one is to keep pushing. There's so many people that are trying to get in the door for so many different reasons. We put out job posting and internship, apprenticeship, like main jobs, and we get so many applicants. And so if you're out there looking for a role, keep pushing, keep applying, keep, you know, doing what you're doing, refine your skill set, keep doing it. Because the need is way more than the, you know, the professionals that we have to do UX work. The second thing is to reach out to um, mentors. Um, I tell people, and they think I'm joking, go onto LinkedIn, see folks that are doing what you think you want to do, have that conversation with them and see what you can learn from them. Read job postings about, you know, design and research and see what they're looking for. And it might not be 100% what you have, but it gives you a sense of like, you know, what teams are doing. And the last thing is that people are thinking when you're thinking about building a portfolio or an experience, it doesn't have to be, you know, on the job experience. There's so many things around us that you can literally do a review. Like think of influencers and how they review products and how people buy it. Look at the technology around you. Look at the industries that excite you. Look at the company and the brands that you want to work with. Take a look at their products and review it with critical thinking or research, you know, ways of thinking about the experience. If you're a designer, fire up, you know, Figma, do some mock-ups and have that be the tool that, um, the way that you keep yourself fresh. And I, I think that it's going to be super 
helpful for those that are listening. And I know there, you know, there are probably some people, some folks listening that are already in the field and they're either in IC roles or leadership or, you know, trying to um, build that innovation and drive the business. And I would say to them to build community, like we are getting bigger in terms of the numbers and companies that have, um, you know, UX, which is design and research. So reach out, build community, learn what you don't know. Do not hesitate to leave some of the things that you used to do and learn new ways of approaching design and research. Um, right, you, you and reach out to me if well, anybody's right? interested to, to talk to me and learn more. I do. I do. So I do coaching for researchers and designers and literally marketers and folks that are thinking about insights and how to drive Great. companies. Well, so I'm also on LinkedIn. Maria, thank you so much for, for joining me today. There's so much more I would love to do, uh, dive into. So if folks want to hear more about you and learn more about what's going on in your world, you, you mentioned LinkedIn, but what are, what are the where are the places they can find you? So I'm on LinkedIn and I'm also on Instagram. Um, Instagram gives you a peek into my world and into my uh, culture. So feel free to follow me um, on LinkedIn, you know, reach we'll, out to we'll LinkedIn or to also follow uh, me in the on show Instagram. notes. And that'll be up at uh, sucks.live. That's S-U-X for saving UX.live. Uh, be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes. And you can also go to sucks.live to find all of the past interviews. So once again, I want to thank Dr. Gloria Obi Osardu for joining me today. Um, until next time, I'm Jeremy Kriegel, and this has been Saving UX.